0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, coming to you live from Macquarie University, and I'm here today with Noah Cohen, who is a lecturer in American Culture Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, and he's also the author of a really fascinating book that I'm uh, very pleased to have the opportunity to read. The title of the book is We Average Unbeautiful Watchers, Fan Narratives, and the Reading of American Sport. It's out from University of Nebraska Press in 2019. Uh, thank you very much, Noah, for joining us. Thank you, Keith. A
1: pleasure to be with you. Uh, I have to
0: start out by asking you how you developed such a fascinating project.
1: Well, like a lot of academic projects, it's it's sort of a combination of, of the personal and professional uh, coming together. I think... Uh, Maybe the personal piece is a little more out front than it is for some academics, but um, I'm sure a few of your listeners will be surprised to hear that sports were a very important part of my life as a young person. Um, Was never really that gifted of an athlete, so fandom was my primary connection to sports. Um, Eventually uh, ended up going to college and and, um, majoring in English, thought I was going to do uh, sports broadcasting. Actually, that was my goal. Um, but I had to major in something. They didn't have a journalism school, so I majored majored in English. And then after college, I worked in sports uh, for several years and kind of decided that I was not that interested in the business of sports and, and more interested in sort of thinking about sports on critical terms, that some of those uh, undergraduate professors had influenced me more than I had really realized. And and I, I wasn't willing to just sort of sit back and um, just uh, you know root for, for teams or root for leagues or you know whoever it was. Uh, I, I was more invested in thinking about why fandom mattered to me, why it mattered to the people around me, why uh, the capital involved was was so much in increasing amounts throughout throughout my life. Um, so so I went I went back to grad school. I went to an English PhD program, and I wasn't sure whether this sports uh, interest was gonna, was gonna be able to connect with my studies. But, but I found that it, that it was able to, I found an advisor who didn't think I was crazy to, to want to think about sports and sports fandom on narrative terms. And, um, and that got me through grad school. I really, um, powered me through some of my uh, cohort mates picked topics that they, I think they were a little less enamored with and, and, uh, had a little bit of a harder time, but I, but I was motivated to, to work on in this field. And, um, wrote a dissertation that, uh, I was really fortunate to, to have a press interested in it in, in Nebraska press. And, um, and it became this book. So it, it was, a in some ways it was, a uh, an unconventional path and other ways it was a, a pretty, um, smooth one. And, and I'm really pleased that, you know, the, the book is here and out and then I can, I can share it with people.
0: It's kind of funny in some ways, uh, I think you're right. Maybe in, 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 in your case, more than in other cases, you really are a little bit out in front of your own research, because one of the things your, your work does so well is to illustrate the way in which sport uh, is a narrative. Although I think um, for our listeners who maybe are not always as, as uh, up to date on discursive analysis or anything like that, maybe we should explain a little bit um, what you mean. So when you say sport, is a narrative? What are you talking about? Why is sport a narrative? How can sport be a narrative? And is sport, as you say throughout your book, uh, in fact necessarily a narrative?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we all know that uh, consuming sport involves stories on some level. Um, when a journalist writes a recap of a sporting event, that's called a sports story, right? Um, that, that much is obvious. Um, but but really, the argument that I'm trying to make is that on a it's sports are story based on a much more fundamental level, right? That the the events themselves are stories. Uh, they may feature a live competition. Um, they feature real athletes who are pushing their bodies um, to presumably uh, to their limits. Um, but those uh, the fundamental building blocks of of sports competitive construct don't change the fact that all the basic elements of narrative are there. There are characters, there's a plot, you know, every sporting event has a very clearly marked beginning, middle and end. There's a, there's a sort of narrative climax, a denouement that comes, comes after. So, I mean, all the pieces of, of stories are present. We just don't really want to see them that way often because, because of the liveness of sport, because of that, competitive construct. But I think throughout the book and in different ways, I try to argue that actually seeing them as stories, understanding them as narratives, and thinking about ourselves, uh, the fans, as readers of sport, when we, when we watch a sporting event, when we consume sports content, uh, can free us up to do a lot of really interesting things in the way that we consume sport. That, that there's a real potential there to destabilize some of the aspects of sports consumership that can be uh, problematic or, or downright toxic at times. Um, and that, that thinking of ourso- ourselves, as readers um, has, has a lot of potential to sort of um, demystify or, or um, detoxify those elements of sports fandom.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, in reading um, through it, I, I, I kept agreeing, you know. I kept writing down, "Yes, you know, <laughs> I, I totally agree that that um, thinking about the way in which we as fans are engaging with sports as a kind of narrative story that we read in different ways opens up new ways of viewing sports, and that's kind of maybe that's what a lot of people in sports studies are doing anyway, without realizing it, right? We're critically engaging as readers with the mm-hmm. with a with a type of narrative. I, I did wonder." Um, throughout, and I guess just kind of as another definitional question, how you're how you're looking at different types of, of fandom. So I wondered if you could um, could uh, unpa- unpack that term of fan that you use for us a little bit more. Everything from casual observer to fanatic. How what is a fan in your in your interpretation?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm really invested in an understanding of fandom that is. Uh, based on a spectrum that is pretty fluid, right? That, that you can be a fan. Even if you are the most casual observer, you can consider yourself a fan and have things that you are invested in that make you a fan. Even if you're just a fan in that moment, right. Uh, and not a fan, you know, the next moment, um, all the way to, you know, the, the person who, you know, has the, um, you know, Minnesota Vikings tattoo and they, Uh, dress in purple face paint every week and they, and they, their entire sort of attitude for that week is determined by whether the Vikings win or lose. Um, that these are, (laughs) these are, uh, related types, not distinct species, right? That, that fandom is, is that spectrum. Um, and in part that's based on, uh, um, wanting to prevent, uh, a phenomenon that often happens in, in fandom, which is a kind of gatekeeping, right? And this happens in all kinds of fandom, not just sports fandom, right? Whereas the, wherein the true fans, right, try to sort of mark their territory and keep others out to keep a sort of closed, uh, social circle. And this, this mode of gatekeeping often, uh, breaks down along, um, lines that are, um, that are not good. So, um, you know, various fem, uh, feminist sports scholars have written about, um, how, um, male sports fans often construct these boundaries and, and, issue, um, sort of knowledge tests or other means of quizzing, um, female fans who seek to be part of their fan community. Uh, and that these, these tests are not so re- much really about the knowledge that, that the woman in question might have, but about clearly conveying to her that she is not welcome. Right. So, so that's part of the reason that I want to think about fandom on a, on a fluid spectrum, right? That, um, any kind of fan, if they, if they connect their personal identity, the story of themselves to a sporting event, uh, in that moment, they are a fan, whether or not this is something that is lasting for them, whether or not it's passed down from their, uh, father and grandfather, they still have a sort of right to claim a fan identity and are worth thinking about on the terms of fandom.
0: Yeah. The outline of your book is kind of, um, you know, each each chapter, it's it stands alone in some in some ways, but they're all kind of interconnected. So I, I guess I'd like to work through them, um, you know, one at a time or talk about them one at a time. And we can continue to to speak about this idea of fan narratives and multiple fan narratives. The first chapter, I think, really um for people who want to get a sense of, of what the whole uh, structure of the book is in terms of understanding this idea of multiple uh, narratives, the first chapter really opens that up. And uh, this is the chapter where you're um, it's, it's called here. I, I have the, the page, the, the contents page open. So we fabricate baseball in the unfriendly confines of history. And you're looking at Don DeLillo and Robert Krueger's um, writing about um, well, really, they're writing about baseball. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about about what you were doing in this chapter.
1: Yeah, if I could just uh, provide some brief backstory on on why the book is structured the way it is. Um, yeah, please. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, like like a lot of um, uh, dissertations, I guess uh, there was a sort of uh, need. I felt a need to demonstrate that I could do um, fan related work on narrative in sort of a lot of different places. And so one of the things that I tried to do in the book was to sort of smooth things out to help uh, emphasize the connection uh, between these, these different chunks. And, and, and new chapters were constructed as well. But but the first chapter is really one of the, the first pieces of writing that I, that I worked on in embarking in on this project um, years ago. And so it's the most probably chapters one and two are the most um, sort of conventionally um, literary critical right they're they're based on texts um, that most well at least especially in chapter one people would understand as fiction but also really the texts in chapter two are are probably mostly understood as fiction and so the question of how the the analysis of these um, fictional writings can apply to, Uh, How we understand real sports fans is something that some people might, I think, might have a question about. As as the book progresses, we get to texts that are more clearly about sort of the sports world as we know it. They're about memoirs. um, There are films. And then finally, the fifth chapter is about sports uh, blogosphere of the sort of early aughts. So it widens out in terms of media types and in terms of the sort of sports universe that is being considered in the later chapters. But these first two chapters um, are sort of close, more closely tied to texts that are sort of self-evidently uh, creative in orientation. But I think that that's still, that they still work, that is still meaningful um, for the reader, especially, especially chapter one, because part of the point of chapter one, right, in considering Delilo and Coover, is to think about um, fandom in terms of that idea of fandom as fantasy and fandom as fanaticism and how that relates to the sort of real um, happenings that are happening, that are taking place on the field, right? The, the, the history, if you will. So we fabricate baseball in the unfriendly confines of history talks about this tension between the imaginings of the fans, the personal worlds that these fans create for themselves and thinking about their relationship to the sport and the ostensibly real, uh, uh, recorded in the annals of history, that the events that are happening on the field, right. And how, how the fan, um, connects those two things um, is sort of the point of the chapter. So DeLillo's novel in particular is obsessed with this idea of historicity, right? He, he, um, he documents in the, in the uh, sort of prologue to his uh, massive novel Underworld, uh, Bobby Thompson's Shot Heard Round the World. The Shot Heard Round the World is a, a title that's applied to a lot of different events in history, but here, but here it's speaking specifically about that famous home run uh, that for the New York Giants against the Brooklyn Dodgers that propelled the, the Giants to the um, pennant in, I think it was 1951. It was the beginning of the era of television, so it was documented on TV and radio and, of course, in newspapers. Um, and uh, DeLillo um, picks up on those accounts and, and weaves them into his account. But he also um, creates fictional fans, people who we have no idea if people like this were at the event but but DeLillo imagines them and through the through those fictional fans, two fans in particular um, Cotter Martin, a young african American kid uh, who sort of jumps the turnstiles to get into the stadium, and Bill Waterson an, an older um, white man who sits next to Cotter he imagines the the sort of uh, camaraderie that builds between them, but also their inner thoughts, especially for Cotter, right? His thoughts about how he's connected to this event, what it means for a black kid to be sitting next to this white man at this um, tremendous event. They're both rooting for the giants, so they have that in common, but he feels the separation from him. And so it's a really interesting way of using the power of fiction, the power of a novel, to examine the fan psyche in a way that history on its own could never do, right? It could never sort of uh, penetrate the consciousness of the people there and the way that DeLillo's imaginings can, so that's 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 part of that first chapter. And the other part is is Robert Coover, Coover's novel, which is more concerned with fantasy worlds um, than actual real baseball. But I think the two texts um, have a distinct interplay that that I think is valuable. So that's that's sort of the setup um, for that chapter.
0: Yeah, they both. I mean, both really. Um both really illuminate the kind of opportunity um, emotional e- ego opportunities and dangers that can come along with different types of fandom. I mean, Martin feeling, um, you know, at home in this audience, a young black boy, all white audience, and then feeling displaced by the presence of the, the, the um, peanut salesman, who's the only other black person in, in the crowd mm-hmm. or, or uh, yeah. So I just, again and again, your work um, kind of, uh, reiterates the kind, it, at least especially in this chapter, I would say reiterates the kind of possibilities of different um, fandoms and the way in which fandoms can allow you to kind of circumvent life circumstances, uh, as you as you put it, um, to escape grand narratives. I, I wonder if you can talk. I'm an historian by training. So, of course, I'm like, oh, man, escaping grand narratives. Uh, this speaks a, a lot to my own research actually as well. Uh, so I wonder if you can you can talk a little bit about how how fandoms allowed people in in Delilo's story in particular uh, to escape these kind of grand narratives.
1: Yeah, I mean I think the the character of Russ Hodges is really interesting in this regard because he's, he sort of seems to realize uh, Russ Hodges was of course a real person, the play by play announcer for the New York Giants. Um, Delillo's imagining of him is based on Delillo's imagination, not necessarily based on, um, Russ Hodges sort of actual thoughts or feelings at that moment. But, but Delillo's Russ Hodges in this moment of the, of the shot, uh, clearing the wall, the giants, uh, winning the pennant, um, sort of recognizes the sort of historic importance of what has transpired, that, that this is history being, being written. And, and he, he tries to market, um, uh, for his partner, the sort of broadcast producer as they as they walk out onto the field after the event, um, as I think he compares it to you know where Lee surrendered to grant or something like that like he 's saying this this event is crystallized here here within history and tries to mark it distinctly as such and that that importance of that event is also however overshadowed within the context of the story by the presence of of um, J Edgar Hoover and his knowledge of a Soviet nuclear test that had taken place the same day, right? And this is part of DeLillo's inspiration for the entire um, story, is that the, the front page of the New York Times, the day after Bobby Thompson's shot, was sort of split in half, half about the the home run and half about this nuclear test in, in Russia. So we have these two pillars of history, if you will, that sort of dominate the headlines the next day. But, but DeLillo resolutely does not allow those... Significant historical events to efface or dominate uh, the narrative that he tells. He's really focused on these ordinary moments. Um, he we talked about Cotter Martin and, and Bill Watterson, but he's also he he sort of flits around the stands at various points, imagining just for a moment the consciousness of some of the people present, noticing some of the details, some of the things that they're worried about, sort of ordinary things for their ordinary lives, and he's, he re, he really seems to want to emphasize that those. Those things um, are not to be ignored. That they are not; er- they should not be erased from how we understand the significance of of this time period and th- these events. Right? Uh, we we shouldn't allow the the Lee surrenders to Grant moment to over override or overwhelm the the powers and the and the possibilities of of individual fans consciousnesses in these moments. And that's 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 so meaningful to me too, because I think, um, too often with sports, especially we allow the prevailing story of who won the game and who lost it, who scored the most points, right? Who the MVP was, you know, we allow those, those master narratives, if you will, to override some of the smaller details that happen in any given event or that each, that any given fan notices in any event. And, and part of my larger argument throughout the book, right. Is that, um, we don't have to, it doesn't have to be that way. We can read a sporting event for different things. We don't have to premise how we read the sporting event on the the, the tale of competitive dominance. And I think DeLillo's attention um, to those small things, to those small possibilities um, of each fan's uh, sort of interpretation is what makes the text a really interesting one to look at uh, in terms of sport and narrative. And uh,
0: I, I, I guess... To think a little bit about chapter two and I, in your description of them, they they sounds like they went together a little bit. And chapter two, for those um, listening, is it was my fate, my destiny, my end to be a fan, football, mental illness and the autobiographical novel. Um, chapter two also kind of deals with this this sense of other alternative narratives beyond this kind of commercial narrative. Um, Commercial success, right, or, or this, or this competitive success. Like, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit uh, what you're doing in that chapter where you're looking at uh, F- Frederick Exley and Matthew Quick's work, um, whether those works are fictional or not. You'll have to tell me, <laughs> um, or you, you can, you can, you can uh, unpick that that knot for us. Um, but what are you up to in that chapter?
1: Yeah, well, Exley's um, A so Fan's Notes is is one of the first texts that I read that I felt like I could write about in a sort of literary critical <laughs> setting. Um, it's a really ugly book in a lot of ways. It, it, these two books are both about football fandom. So the part of the transition here is also, um, from, from baseball to football, but, um, but actually this football fandom is, is marked by a lot of the sort of, um, things that you might stereotype, uh, sort of crazy, a football fan to have it's marked by misogyny by homophobia um by a certain violence by alcohol um so he's he doesn't paint a pretty picture of himself as a football fan and 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 the question as to whether this is fiction or not right uh, that you you broached is is kind of the existential question of the text itself right like who is frederick exley am i um some essential, is there an essential me or am I just this sort of fabrication of, of myself? Right. Um, that's, that's part of the question of the text and, and, and actually the author and sort of, um, protagonist, if you can call it that narrator of the text, uh, he, he, he blurs that line intentionally because the other piece of this and the the framing device really, as you can tell from the second piece of that subheader is, is mental illness. Um, Actually, himself, the historical person such as we know him, uh, did suffer from mental illness and was institutionalized on several occasions. And his character, the the sort of representation of himself in this in this autobiographical novel, is also um, struggles with that. So the question of whether sports are real or not, uh, whether they they tie us to a sort of historically grounded uh, happening, or whether they are just about our perceptions. Is, is an open one for him, because, in part because he doesn't really know if what he's perceiving is ultimately uh, real. Um, so that text, along with Matthew Quick's book, The Silver Linings Playbook, which a lot of people might be familiar with uh, from the film context, and I actually talk about the film later in my book, uh, but that film is based on a, a, a novel that, that Matthew Quick wrote, uh, unlike Exley, Matthew Quick does not insert his own name, or or uh, lead you to believe that the narrator, um, in called Pat Peoples in the book, Pat Solitano in the film, is himself. But actually, in several interviews that he did about the the book, he he talks about his own struggles with mental illness and his own Eagles football fandom. So there's reason to believe that a lot of his own experiences is, is also in that text, which also deals with a institutionalized uh, football fan, also a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, oddly enough. Um, oh, sorry, I have got it backwards. Actually, F- is not a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles. He's a fan of the Giants, New York Giants. Right. But the Eagles are prominently featured in that text because the the football player that he attaches himself to, that he sort of considers his like lodestar, his green light, if you will, uh, is is uh, Frank Gifford. And Gifford's um, ter- career traumatically uh, ends, uh, or actually, I think he kind of came back briefly, but he was never the same after a, a brutal hit by Chuck Bednarik, who is an Eagles linebacker. So sorry for that confusion. But the, the two texts are pretty close in there, sort of what football fandoms they're attached to as NFC East rivals. So they're connected in that way, but they're also connected in this, in this question of, um, their own psyches and what sports fandom can do for them in relationship to their, to their mental illness. And ultimately, while, while both texts feature their fair share of ugliness, I already sort of talked about it in the exleyan context. Um, the, the character Pat Peoples, uh, also, um, has several violent incidents. He's, he, his father is um, abusive and, and alcoholic so there's that piece of it as well but in both cases both for exley and and people's um though the the text don't suggest that fandom heals these men or, or makes them complete or whole or or in any way it does suggest that it ties them to a community that gives them a, a sort of stable identity in the face of of this erasure of self that they that they um struggle with right part of part of being institutionalized part of what both men struggle with is that this the institutions um, in in trying to help them with their mental illness wipe away their distinctiveness they don't feel like they have any um, identity anymore and so tying themselves to this to these particular teams and connecting themselves to the the more positive community-based aspects of their fandoms um, give them identity and give the ground them in a reality that they can that they can hold on to and, and gives them some hope. So, so part of the point of that text is is whereas the or that chapter is that whereas the first chapter is about um, blurring the line between fan experience and sort of the annals of history, this is about sort of um, using fandom to ground yourself on something real, something historic, maybe um, to to stabilize. So it, it almost works um, back back to history where the first chapter sort of pull, pulls you away from it a little bit.
0: Both uh, of these chapters. And I guess in some ways also your fourth chapter on film deal with, um, as you suggested earlier, uh, accounts that are, are fictional or understood to be um, perhaps in fictional, a more complicated way. Um, so I'm wondering if you can, um, if I if I could push at that a little bit to to ask you how then these fictional accounts can help us understand kind of lived fandom, um, you know, in in, in, the, in the real world sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I part of uh, I mean, sort of my baseline argument about uh, narrative, and I, I guess I probably didn't articulate this earlier, right? Is that um, if we're thinking about sports on narrative terms, they're not that much different than thinking about novels or, uh, films, uh, any kind of story-based entertainment. And, um, oftentimes those story-based entertainments, uh, while fictional, right, uh, provide meaning that, uh, helps people in their ordinary lives, whether that be an attachment to, um, Spider-Man or Game of Thrones or, um, I'm not sure what, but, but cultural texts that, that don't pertain to our world as we know it, right. Can, can, um, give us, uh, give us things to hold on to for our identity that, 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 whether that be just a community of people to talk to or a sort of inspiration for a, a mode of behavior, they, they contribute to our ordinary lives all the time. They help us cohere around a sense of, uh, a sense of ourselves. These are the things that I like. I pull them into the constellation of me. This is who I am, based on the things that I like. Now, obviously, this is also grounded in capitalism. So the question of you know, <laughs> is our sense of self uh, fundamentally just a, a consumer, a collection of consumer products, is a is a fair and open one. But but for the purposes of your question about fiction, right, I don't I don't think that there's uh, really any difference in thinking about. Um, sports fandom and what it means uh, through the lens of these texts that are overtly fictional than there is through a memoir or through a blog post about real fan experience. Because I think uh, all of these authors, uh, any author who's trying to depict fandom um, responsibly or, or in a sort of uh, interesting way, is going to do so in, in a way that um, is, is true, at least on some level, to the, the mode of investment that, that we all partake in, in in considering fandom. So I, I I guess I'm not, since I'm, since I'm sort of destabilizing the, the reality of any kind of fandom, I think that uh, doesn't really, um, I'm not really interested in uh, policing the boundaries between texts that are based on real life experience and those that sort of imagine, imagine fandom. I'm not sure if that yeah. responds. No, no, to no, saying, that makes but...
0: totally, no, no, totally. Um, and, and one of the things you you, you um, iterate again and again in, in your book is that um, the literature on fandom already does this in a lot of ways, but it doesn't do it for sports, right? Yeah. Like for some reason, sports fandom just is considered to be very different than other types of, of fandom. And, and your work says, okay, that distinction is, doesn't make sense to me. And I think very productively explodes that difference. Although, I I, I, for our listeners, I guess I'm. I wonder if you could explain why you think that 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 distance and that difference exists. Why have uh, other fan studies not even looked at sports at all, or not taken sports seriously and sports fandom seriously?
1: Yeah, that's the sort of uh, gap in the literature (laughs) piece that I try to address in the introduction to my text, right? Which is that there is there is a large well-established um, field of scholarship uh, with prominent scholars that studies uh, fandoms uh, mostly media fandoms uh, through a humanistic lens um, in in uh, communications departments but also in English departments people study um, fandom through the lens of visual art you know comics and other fandoms film studies departments have, fan study scholars. So, so there's lots of um, humanistic consideration of fandom and its importance in our culture, but it doesn't, hasn't much touched on sports fandom as being part of this realm where sports fans are, are studied in the university seems to be in um, uh, psychology departments, business schools, uh, more quantitative modes of analysis are generally used to study sports fans, whereas there's a lot more qualitative analysis of uh, media fans. There's also quantitative analysis of media fans, so they kind of spread spread both. But, but the sports fans don't really come to the humanities side, or aren't studied in the humanities side nearly as often. So that's you know that's part of how I position my book as trying to fill that gap. The reasons for that. Um, have to do with this sense of reality with regard to sports, uh, liveness, right? Um humanities scholars tend to want a text or a sort of something uh concrete that they can hold on to and, and not want to conduct, you know, interviews or um or uh survey data or that kind of thing. So that that that's part of it. It's connected to that that liveness piece of it. I think it's also connected to um the, the stereotype, uh, well-founded stereotype of, of toxic masculinity that's connected to sports fandom, right? This idea that sports fans are mostly, uh, men misbehaving and that, and as such, they aren't necessarily very interesting for study for, from a humanistic lens that, that much of what they, uh, they did, they don't really produce, uh, creative texts of their own. They don't, uh, really create a culture kind of that passive
0: is, receivers
1: in a way, right? That this this is very much part of this idea that that these men just sort of uncritically consume sports. Um, they're just handed it by by culture producers, you know, TV networks and and others, and and that's that's all that they do in watching sports, right? And that's very much not the case. There are plenty of texts and plenty of iterations of sports fandom that that defy that stereotype. But, but it's easy to sort of just dismiss sports fandom for that reason, I think. Um, and, you know, I also think it has something to do with um, the role of sports in universities, right? I mean, sports in American universities are this massive, a, a, a Division I uh, programs in the, under the NCAA system, right? Are this massive moneymaker for the university. Um, they're super prominent on campus. They have an outsized influence on a lot of different aspects of the university. And I think a lot of academics, for good reason, uh, oftentimes uh, resent that piece of culture that dominates a lot of the, the campus life and are not as <laughs> motivated to try and um, see the things in fan culture that, that I sort of argue are worth, are worth looking at, worth studying, worth thinking about, right? So th- those, I think, are the main factors, why sports fandom has not really been studied through a humanistic lens. Um, And again, I don't, don't, there is a reason those stereotypes exist. There certainly are uh, pervasive forms of sort of hegemonic toxic masculinity that persist with regard to sports fandom. But I also think there are lots of other ways to perform and engage in sports fandom that are worth thinking about. And I think if we just ignore that because we find sports sort of distasteful, that we're really missing something.
0: Well, certainly your, your third chapter illustrates both the, the vibrancy of the, 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 product, the productive vibrancy of sports fans, but also potentially some of those toxic uh, masculinities that you, that, you, that you say are, are, um, are there. And uh, so your third chapter is race in the basketball memoir, fan identity, the eros of a black man's game. And uh, you look at a number of different authors, Spike Lee, Scott Rabb. Bill Simmons, David Shield, John Weidman's. So, uh, so what are you doing in this chapter? And, and maybe, I guess, more specifically, how can you how do you look at these memoirs and illuminate different kind of racialized fandoms within basketball?
1: Yeah, so um, this chapter is the is. Probably my favorite in the in the book. I mean, I guess I'm supposed I guess I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I really
0: it was really, it was my favorite in the book <laughs> until I got to the fifth chapter, but I, I really liked this chapter as well.
1: Yeah. Um I, I really like this chapter because um, you know, it at you know, the first chapter was football, the second chapter baseball, the third chapter basketball. It didn't wasn't really intended to break down on a sport by sport basis, but it's sort of happened that way. And I I found um, Years and years ago I had read Bill Simmons' book of basketball, and I had been really bothered by the way that he thought about his own basketball fandom. In a book that's ostensibly about sort of ranking basketball players for his pyramid of greatness or however he wants to reconstitute the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um and I and I really noticed, especially in in sort of reading this this depiction of himself, how clearly racialized it was and how clearly eroticized he made black bodies out to be. There are moments in that text where he talks about, you know, David Robinson's body as he objectifies it as like a Ferrari Testarossa or like a thoroughbred horse. Um, he talks about Manute Bull as having skin so purple he looked like an alien. I mean, it's just really um, sort of limited and and just... Terrible ways of thinking about these uh, black athletic performers that he purports to have such an attachment to, but beyond just that sort of gross revulsion at that, I began to realize as I encountered other texts, right, that that basketball, because it is the the American game uh, of the Big Four sports league, right, that in which the the demographics are the most. African-American. I think it's something like 70, upper 70s percent. I'm not sure what the current statistics are, but it is still the case that it is a largely uh, black league um, with a mostly white audience that that there's a real opportunity here to dig deeper into the racial dynamics of, of sports fandom and how um, white fans think about the black athletes that are performing for them. And so I found, um, in addition to Simmons text. I found, uh, I decided to focus on rather Scott Robb's unfortunately titled book, the whore of Akron, which is about his distaste for LeBron James after LeBron left Cleveland to go to Miami, but before the return to Cleveland, obviously, um, there's that text, David Shields's book about being a Sonics fan in the nineties, black planet, uh, which is, uh, Sort of self-flagellating take uh, uh, of his perspective as a, a white fan of this bla- mostly black team, and and he of the three white authors that I consider thinks most um, sort of uh, basically most uh, overtly about his sexual attraction to the players. Right, but then I thought it, it can't just be about you know how these uh, these white fans exotify Uh, black bodies and sexualize them right in, in consuming them. I also, you know, need to think about African-American authors. And I, and I um, had read John Edgar Wideman's book, Hoop Roots, um, and then was made aware of that, that Spike Lee, who of of course I knew as a, as a director of many, many films had also written a memoir about being a fan. And once I uh, brought those texts to the fore, the, the, the comparison really opened up because I was able to see the way in which those African-American authors really recognized this dynamic of, of white fandoms uh, relationship to black bodies. And even in spite of that found in basketball, a a mode, a possibility uh, for, for not only for black athletes, but also for black fans to, to find through basketball uh, uh, a means of expression through which they could uh, find resistance to, white hegemony and also, um, feel some sense of sort of freedom and of, and of agency for themselves. So, so that was, that was important to me. And and one of the reasons that I really like the chapter is it's not just about how problematic, uh, the racial politics of fandom can be, especially when we have a white audience and, and black performers, but also about how, um, even in that, even within that construct, there's room for resistance, there's room for, for joy and, and, expressivity and and freedom and and weidman and and lee really pick up on that and to to lesser or sort of differing degrees between the two of them i mean lee is himself because he is such a celebrity force um himself a sort of uh black performer whose persona is consumed by others um so he has that that take on it as as well but that yeah that's i i think i've given the main gist of the chapter and i dig into all their different texts it, it can be Quite a lot to balance at times, but I think I come out the come out the other side of it with a with a fascinating account of um, of racial politics and and the and the the league that you know now now has this perception as being the most woke league with regard to social justice issues and things like that. And I think that it certainly has changed and improved in some ways since, say, the '90s when David Shields was thinking about it. But it's still a league that that has to grapple with this this basic dynamic of, of who's consuming it and, and what, what the racial politics are involved are. Yeah, I
0: certainly, I, I thought this chapter was just uh, incredible. And certainly people who are fans of the NBA should read it. Um, coming from Cleveland myself, I was, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I was reading it and I was, it it was at times I had to check my own fandom, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> One of the things that I saw in this chapter that kind of underpins a lot of your discussion in the book, but I think comes most to the fore in this particular chapter, is that there's always underneath your discussions of of these various types of fandoms, another, another spectral fandom, which is this kind of commercial sports fandom, a kind of monolithic passive sports fandom that maybe people assume that all sports fans are. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that in relation to this chapter, because certainly we see um, Rab and Simmons and, and Shields—they're not ordinary fans, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about maybe um, how how Lee and Weidman and Rab and all of these uh, different authors, how their particular places within the sports um, world might make them be able to be different types of fans, or can we all be these types of fans, and and we just don't know it, or or how do how does how does how do other fans fit in you know
1: that's an interesting point i mean they they are um all of them all of the memoirists um privileged in some with re- some regard with uh with respect to their uh relationship to the game and by that i mean you know simmons by the time he wrote the book had become a popular media personality for espn.com rab while he um maybe wasn't that well-known to very many basketball players, had been writing for, uh, I think it was Esquire for some time. So he was used to sort of interviewing celebrities and, and was able to get access to the, the Cleveland Cavaliers locker room as a member of the press for much of the writing of the book. Um, David Shields uh, is, uh, was then and still is a professor of creative writing at the University of Washington. And um, in the beginning of his memoir, the sort of beginning of his time following that Sonics team, he does have press credentials. He eventually gets kicked out for asking questions that are <laughs> too uh, probing, I guess. Um, so the, most of the text he's actually only watching from the stands, but he does have you know certain privileges and access there. I already talked about Spike Lee. You know, obviously his celebrity plays a large uh, role in how he understands sports fandom. His famous um, run-ins with Reggie Miller's uh, sideline uh, during the '90s in the playoffs are. are part of the the narrative of the book and and weidman um though not really a fan of the nba himself uh played high level college basketball at the university of pennsylvania and so has a relationship to the game that's premised on on being a a competitive player with you know some of some of the best college college players so as to their sort of ordinariness you might say that they all are, are somewhat exceptional in how they how they relate to the game but i think um I think part of the realization that they have, or some of them have, I I guess, in the text, I'm thinking most about um, Weidman and Shields, actually. But uh, the realization that they have is that that, um, they kind of have to give up or shed that personality or that, that status that they previously had to engage with the game in a new way. Uh, for Shields, that comes from that alienation from the locker room, that lack of access, that sort of self-flagellation that I talked about earlier. Uh, he he comes to um, understand fandom on on religious terms to a certain degree, which is something a lot of people uh, you know analogize fandom to religion. But but he he thinks of it more in a sort of self-aggrandizing way that uh, that. Um, that his sports fandom, like a lot of people's relationship to a religion, uh, makes them, makes them feel, uh, special or that they are, you know, cared for in a special way by some, some higher power, uh, for, for wide minutes about giving up his ability to play. He's sort of forced into fandom. He has this sort of disgust for fandom as a sort of, um, mode of being that is, is, inherently lesser than than the experience of playing the game he's a he's a longtime pickup hoops player playground hoops player and he's he's just aged too much he can no longer even play on the playground and so part of his sort of humbling if you will is his realization that he can't enter that space as a as a participant so you know is basketball gone is it is he is he stripped of this this thing that had been so meaningful for him since he he's a child and he ultimately comes to realize that that it will be different, but it but it is not gone. That that um, even even humbled, physically humbled as he is, basketball still has meaning and importance for him. So I think to sort of roundabout way to answer your question, no, I don't think you know we need special status or special abilities to come around to sports fandom in a in a distinct way. But I but I do think it might be necessary for for ordinary fans to have a sort of awakening moment where they kind of realize that uh, just because um, they live in a market doesn't mean they have to root for the local team or just because they you know communed with their father in this way about fandom or their mother in this way about fandom, that they, that they are trapped into that Uh, mode of being that that actually you know all fans have a lot of agency in their fandom you know it's obvious on one level of course you can pick whoever you want to root for but for so many fans it feels like a burden i mean cleveland for rob it's it's like he connects being a cleveland sports fan to his jewishness right it's it's so fundamental core to his identity he he could no uh no more give up his cleveland fandom than he could give up his his uh sort of sense of identity as as a jew so um so yeah well it may be obvious that you can switch teams anytime you want i think a lot of fans kind of need an awakening that that they can practice fandom in in different ways they don't have they're not stuck doing it the way they've always done it and so you can get more out of fandom or something different out of fandom than what than what you have always done to that point
0: yeah i and I, I hate to, to to do this, but in the, I, I want to skip right to chapter five because that speaks mm-hmm. directly to what you're talking about in chapter five, chapter five, which is reimagined communities, web mediated fandom and new narrative possibilities for sport. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about, where fans cre- create their own communities uh, disaggregated from this idea of kind of geographic filial uh, links that typically define very much who we are. I mean, I'm also from Cleveland, so I've read Scott um Rabb's work and uh, I often explain my own personality and identity in terms of Cleveland fandom, (laughs) you know, don't Mm -hmm. worry. I'm used to being disappointed, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Um, But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your, about your fifth chapter and how the internet empowers new um, varieties of fandoms.
1: Yeah. the, The fifth chapter, um, at the time I started working on it various aspects of it. Um, it was, you know, they probably 2012 or 13. So the, this, this era that I write about of the sort of mid aughts uh, sports blogosphere to me still felt relatively fresh, but, but now another seven years or so after that, it's, it's it sort of feels like ancient history when it comes to <laughs> comes to the internet. Um, but the, and I talk about three blogs, uh, Free Darko, which was a basketball blog, Fire Joe Morgan, which was a baseball blog, and a uh, 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 blog by Jessica Luther, who's, who's a sports journalist now. She's one of the co-hosts of the excellent uh, feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. At that time, she was sort of doing a feminist uh, blog on her own. So I write about those three blogs, all of which ended by 2013 or fourteen at the latest. Um, but, but I think part of what you're specifically alluding to is Free Darko and, and their concept, uh, this was a collective, several uh, authors, their concept of, um, liberated fandom, which was, uh, the first time I read it, uh, just reading their blog for pleasure was like a light bulb moment for me. Right. And it is just, just what the, the name implies and what you've been alluding to, right? This idea that you can liberate your fandom from those conventional ways of understanding and that you can root for it, um, a player on a team that you don't even like just root for just the player that you can think about storylines that have nothing to do with the competitive construct of the game that you can care about the aesthetics of a game that you can think about the sonic landscape of a game that you can connect that game to, um, you know, some, some particular jazz music that you're really into and, and sort of compare the stylings of, of a player to that music, right. That you can, uh, Build from sports fandom a, a, a lot of creative possibilities that don't even occur to a lot of people and and these uh, this collection of of um, authors who all turned out to be graduate students <laughs> as it turned out um, really explored those possibilities in in new and exciting ways they sort of thought of themselves as a kind of like basketball avant garde right with any avant garde there are always missteps there are always <laughs> <laughs> things that are proclaimed, you know, that, that turn out to be just, you know, uh, nothing more than a hill of beans, but, but some of the things that some of the concepts, some of the ways of thinking about fandom that they sort of fired back and forth at each other were really influential for me. And I thought were really fascinating. And, and foremost among those was, was liberated fandom. Another thing that they talked about though, um, that's relevant to, to, to today's NBA was, um, what they called the positional revolution, and the positional revolution was a way of thinking about um, players as not tied to our conventional ideas of what those uh, the positions that they play are supposed to do, right? And so they imagined, you know, uh, centers who would shoot uh, threes all the time, and and point guards who would be sort of rangy. Uh, individuals who, you know, could lead the team in rebounds and, and, and thinking beyond the sort of basic contract constructs of positionality with regard to basketball. And that seems to have be what has happened to basketball some, you know, a decade later, right? right? (laughs) uh, If your center doesn't shoot threes, you have a problem because the other team is going to stretch you, uh, you know, try to pull your center out of the paint, uh, even if he doesn't, doesn't want to come out. So, uh, so the blog turned out to be very influential, um, in in some ways and uh, and it was a, also a really fun read because they they took a lot of joy in the sort of their creative expression as as basketball fans um they themselves this chapter really made me
0: think of of two things one uh, this this kind of especially in the free darko um emphasis on on style um it really mm-hmm. sounds like sports in some ways from the 19th century where you know, they'd have uh, races, uh, you know, track and field style races where um, the winner of the race could be the person not who ran the fastest, but who ran uh, in the most stylish way, in the most correct way. So it wasn't enough Mm -hmm. to just be quick. You actually had to also be um, to be physically stylish. And so that was kind of interesting to me. But one of the reasons why I liked this chapter the most when I finished your book, and I, maybe I shouldn't play favorites either, but um, one of the reasons I thought it was the most interesting is each one of these blogs, in some ways, because they applied a critical reading to sports, in fact, changed the sports that they were that they were reading critically. Mm-hmm. You know, so whether it's Free Dark or Free Joe Morgan or Power Forward, they all kind of changed the ways in which people think about or view view the sports. I wonder if you can talk about about uh, the possibilities for new critical fandoms to just change the way in which sports are even played.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think there's a P there's a, there's a way in which you can see the influence of these, these blogs in our contemporary sportscape, even though most people have never heard of, of any of them. Um, I already sort of talked about free Darko's, uh, influence, uh, Fire Joe Morgan, um, which was uh, authored by a collection of um, comedy writers who sort of did this as their, uh, in their free time, one of whom is Mike Schur, the, the showrunner behind The Good Place and uh, Parks and Recreation and other shows, who also does a, a baseball uh, podcast with um, Joe Poznanski these days, I think. Uh, anyway, th- these, this group of comedy writers um, were very invested in thinking about baseball on, with, in, on, in smart ways using analytics. And at this time, at the time that they were writing in the in the early aughts, a lot of uh, mainline baseball journalists were very resistant to analy- analytics as ways of thinking about uh, baseball strategy. Um, and Joe Morgan, the person that they encouraged to be fired, was particularly uh, vocal about this, suggesting that you know baseball scouts could use their gut to determine who a good who a good baseball player was. They didn't they didn't need to use any measurables (laughs) to do so right and and instead of um instead of laying out the math really for people instead of sort of uh trying to show how important analytics could be by by showing just how effective predictors of of excellence they really were um this group of comedy writers did what comedy writers do which is make fun of the (laughs) journalists uh it's it was really a, a satire site uh someplace that was supposed to make you laugh at the idiocy of, of these various journalists. It wasn't just Joe Morgan. It was many, many journalists and not just TV journalists, print journalists as well. And, and that's part of what I think was so interesting about the site was that, um, you know, certainly analytics have taken off and, and every professional team has an analytics department and um, there are all kinds of ethical questions about, you know, measurables with regard to biometrics and all these things that teams are doing to try to have the most information about what's happening on the court at all times. Um, but while they, you know, thought that having that information was important and and sort of wanted to preach the gospel of, of, um, you know, new and better ways to measure the game of baseball, they would not put aside the fun of it, right? They would not leave aside, uh, uh, the sort of, the humor and the laughs, right? They're, they're comedy writers. They understood the importance of joy um, in all of that. And I think you can see that that influence um, in a lot of spaces on the internet, that there's a lot of um, places where, you know, uh, smart takes on sports are appreciated, but but there's also uh, humor involved, um, whether that be, I don't know, I'm trying to think of, you know, th- even just your basic Twitter thread often turns into a kind of, uh, joke fest in certain places. It can also turn into other things that are maybe less sure. less hilarious. But but there's a there's a I think sort of the wacky uh, sports world. The making sports uh, fun, focusing on uh, that fun is something that you know baseball is desperately trying to do. This, the, their uh, whole um, thing about let the kids play, right? They're trying to energize their fan base. They're trying to make the sport fun for people again. Right, and I, that's something that I think Fire Joe Morgan did, did really well. We can be smart about baseball while we're still having fun with it. That isn't to say they didn't take on serious issues as well. They also talked about um, you know, the race in baseball with regard to players like David Eckstein, the scrappy lunch pail players who just so happened were always white. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, they, they did engage with serious issues as well. But I think the most important thing that they did was, was emphasize that you can be a smart fan while still having fun being a fan. Um, and then, what, as for Jessica Luther, like I already mentioned, her involvement with with current involvement with the Burn It All Down podcast, she's written a lot. She has an incredible book that everyone I recommend everyone should read called "Unsportsmanlike Conduct: College Football and the Politics of Rape," where she talks about the prevalence um, of rape on college campuses more broadly, and then how it specifically relates to athletics, and then even within that, how the sort of racialized portrait of Black athletes committing these sexual assaults is then sold to the public. It's, it's an excellent text, critical look at that. But she does, sort does. of laid the groundwork f- for a lot of these critical issues on her blog. A lot of the things that she's become known for sort of set up set up in that space. It, but she also had, took time to really be a fan. It wasn't just a p- place of professional writing. She also talked about um, her, her personal connection to Serena Williams, her fandom for Brittany Griner. Um, so, so it was very much also a fan space
0: this chapter really made me think uh, as well as chapter three about whether there was a possibility for a kind of critical fandom that created better spaces for non-white, um, non, non non-gender binary, non heteronormative uh, female athletes. Is this, is this a kind of, um, is this a kind of possibility for a more critical fandom or, or, um, And is this something we should all be doing as, as our sports fandoms? Like what can we do to help create these spaces perhaps?
1: Yeah. I mean, I do think that those spaces increasingly exist. Um, The burn it all down podcast and the community around it is, is one of those spaces. It's a, it's a a resolutely feminist uh, space that uh, forefronts female voices uh, uh, always and, and wants to give you, you know, women's perspective on these sporting issues, um, both with regard to uh, the, the athletes themselves, with regard to women athletes, but also just with regard to uh, women fans, even if they're fans of men's sports. So that's, that's one of those spaces. I mean, I think the internet, it, it can be so ugly and it can be um, easy to vilify it as a place where sort of uh, people's worst impulses are given a forum. But I think it's also a place where, you know, there's suddenly space for these smaller groups or these groups with specific interests that need empowerment, that need encouragement uh, to find each other, to find support, to find community, right? And at its best, sports can be uh, a really positive space of community formation. So where sports and the internet allow these kind of um, new uh, formations of sports fans from disadvantaged groups or from, uh, you know, from... People with perspectives on fandom that are are committed to anti-racism, con- committed to you know fighting homophobia, committed to these issues, that you know the internet provides a platform for that to happen. So so part of the uh, the message of my fifth chapter too is right is is that yes, barstool exists, ugly sports fandom is out there on the, on the internet. That is a problem, but we can't just blow up the internet because there's also a lot of good that's happening there with regard to sports fandom
0: well I um, I want to encourage people to go out and pick your book up and read it um, I, I especially uh, loved as I mentioned the third and fifth chapters I think uh, fans of contemporary sports especially if you're an NBA fan um, need need to read need to read these chapters um, uh, the final question uh, with us is always the same which is uh, now that we've enjoyed this book what can we look forward to next Noah
1: you know, I, I'm only in the very earliest stages of, of the next project. It's it's really something that I'm still brainstorming, but um, I am, I'm really interested in thinking about uh, the football helmet on, on multiple registers and thinking about the football helmet as a site of, of traumatic violence and brain trauma. Obviously, this is in the headlines a lot, but also as a cultural and aesthetic object, right? And what it what it signifies for how we think about this, this mode of masculinity that is forged in, in American football. So um, while I haven't written any, any sort of words beyond my own sort of scribbled notes to myself on this, that, that is the project that I'm sort of dreaming about these days.
0: Well, that sounds interesting, and I'm hopeful we'll talk about it when it's, when it's a completed project. Um, we've been joined here today by Noah Cohen, the author of We Average Unbeautiful Watchers' Fan Narratives in the Reading of American Sports. It's out from University of Nebraska Press in 2019. You've been listening to the New Books in Sports podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, coming to you live from Macquarie University. Thank you very much, Noah, for joining us. Thanks, Keith. Thank you all for listening.